We thank you for this time together to learn, to learn about scripture and learn about its setting in the history of your church. We give thanks for this gathering today in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Amen. Well, good morning. Good morning. So good to see you all today. Um, Thank you for coming. This is a topic that, that has always fascinated me. And as we look back in, in church history, the different conversion stories, and we know our, our biblical conversion stories by Paul, which was amazing, um, very important. Um, but these are going to be reaching back into history and looking at maybe some stories that we're not as familiar with. So today we're going to talk about Constantine the Great. Does anybody know anything about Constantine the Great? He's dead. That's right. He's dead. <laughs> anybody else? Well, so what? Tell you more. Well, first of all, let me talk about why it is important that we we study these things. They remind us that no one is beyond the reach of Jesus. Some of, we know in Paul's story that he was a persecutor and a hater of Christians until he was converted. Constantine was lived during a time where Christians in Rome were persecuted, killed, hunted down, arrested. So it reminds us that no one is beyond the reach of Jesus. Conversion is a work that God begins and a work that God perfects. So any of these stories are 100% divine and 100% of God. It is for his sake that he begins the work and for his praise that he sees it through. Conversion is a supernatural. Conversion is a miracle. Where God changes the heart of an individual. It's right here. I got it on. Oh, it's already going? Yeah, I got it. Oh, you're sorry. That's all right. (laughs) And so it just emphasizes the fact that nothing can separate us from God's love. And I mean, we can't hear that enough, I feel like. Nothing can separate us from God's love. So he teaches us about how to be holy in the world by looking back at the witness of the church. Reflection on the past protects us from error and reminds us that God is faithful. That God is faithful. And he has, through history, been working out a plan for salvation for his people. In fact, he did um, when he gave his son. So who is Constantine? A.D. 272 to 337. He, yeah, he's dead. Dorsey, you're right. He is no longer with us. He was the emperor of Rome who ruled for 31 years, approximately, which I think is pretty rare for Roman emperors of the time. And in his time, he made Christianity the main religion of Rome. And he created Constantinople, which is what now? Istanbul. Istanbul. There's a song about that, right? 
<laughs> and that became the most powerful city in the world at that time. And to understand how significant this is, he was, he was born in a time of war, of disease. And even during a time that was called the crisis of the third century, there was another, another emperor called Diocletian, which you may be familiar with, and he tried to bring order by distributing the power out to four rulers that would govern the four quarters of the empire. Constantine's father was one of the rulers. So he grew up in the court of this emperor Diocletian, and he was well-educated. He observed firsthand Diocletian's persecution of Christians. And it wasn't pretty, as much Christian persecution is <laughs> in our history. And this could have bothered Constantine a bit, because it is believed that his father practiced Christianity. So he was, he was aware of the things that were going on, you know, particularly because it was close to him. So Diocletian's plan fell apart, thankfully. And after the death of his father, Constantine was declared emperor by his father's soldiers. So he spent the next 18 years battling the three other Roman rulers, his rivals, to become the sole emperor. And so he is, he is known for several things, but he's best known for his conversion to Christianity, in my opinion, which, according to legend, occurred prior to a battle in the year 312. He said that about noon, when the day was already beginning to decline, he saw with his own eyes the sign of a cross of light. And we is reported to be the Chi Rho in the sky. And that's on your handout. Um, this right here. You've probably seen this around the church. Um, does anybody know what that's what Cairo, what, what that stands for? The Greek letters Chi and Rho, C-R. It's a Christian symbol for Christ. You superimpose the letters Chi and Rho, which are actually Rho is P, but which are the first two letters of the Greek in the name of Christ. So he was a, he was struck by amazement. I mean, wouldn't you be? Um, the symbol as it appeared in the sky bore an inscription, and I, I am no Latin scholar, but I'm going to attempt it, in hoc signo vinces, which means, by this symbol, you will conquer. By this symbol, you will conquer. And it's said that the whole army witnessed this. So it wasn't just him. The whole army saw it. And he was unsure what this could mean. But while he continued to ponder, it became night and he went to sleep. And, and it said that he had a dream where Jesus appeared to him 
with the same sign which he had seen in the heavens and commanded him to make a likeness of that sign which he had seen. And he ended up making the likeness. He painted it on all of the battle flags, all of the armor of the warriors, and they all entered into battle basically in the name of Christ. That simply did not happen in that time. So the fact that he recognized this and he imposed this thankful gift on his army speaks to the, I think, to the validity and the seriousness of his, his vision. So, in his dream, Jesus commanded him to use the sign as a safeguard in all engagements with his enemies. So when he woke up, he told his friends about the marvel in his dream. And he called together workers in gold and precious stones and sat in the midst of them and described to them the sign he had seen, telling them to represent it in gold and in precious stones. But at the time when he was struck with amazement at this vision, and when he was resolving that to worship no other god than him who had appeared to him, he sent for those who were acquainted with Christianity and the mysteries of the doctrine and inquired who that god was and what did this vision mean. So he brought in advisors. Some of them probably thought he was crazy. Actually, probably most of them thought he was crazy. But he brought in these advisors to help him figure out what all this meant. They affirmed that he was God, the only begotten son, the person that that Constantine had seen in his dream, the only begotten son of the one and only God, that the sign which appeared was the symbol of immortality and the trophy of that victory over death, which Jesus won in the past when he visited earth. They told him about how he came to be born and explained to him the true account of his incarnation. So Constantine was in awe. He was in awe of all that was happening. Who wouldn't be? (laughs) Comparing the vision with the interpretation given by his advisors, he found that what he had seen and what he had felt and what he had heard was confirmed. Believing this knowledge had been given to him by God, he decided to devote himself from then on to the reading of the inspired writings. Moreover, he made the priests of God his advisors. So those that were already leaning in the the Christian camp, he made them his advisors, which again is also huge. I think it would be like, well, I'm not going to get political, but it's huge. (laughs) that he invited these people to be his advisors. He thought it was his duty to honor the God who appeared to him with all his devotion, all in, 100%. Then, being strengthened by this hope in God, 
he went on quickly to fight the fire of tyranny. Not my words. He personally invited the ministers to spend time with him. He showered them with every possible honor, treating them favorably as people who were consecrated to the service of his God. He let them join him at the table, even though they were dressed so plainly, because he did not look at the outer man, but saw the God within him. Does this sound familiar? Maybe. They accompanied him on his travels, believing that the God they served would help him as a result. He gave vast amounts of money from his own personal treasury to the churches of God for the enlarging and heightening of their sacred buildings and for decorating the sanctuaries of the church. Constantine's conversion to Christianity was a turning point in history and for our religion. His conversion and subsequent acceptance of faith, combined with the support of legal and infrastructure, gave Christianity a solid base within the Mediterranean. Christianity would spread across the Roman Empire because of Constantine, and until the fall of the empire, it continued to grow. And at the time of the fall of the empire, Christianity had gained footholds across Europe and Eastern Asia because this emperor was converted to Christianity, because he saw this vision, because he believed, because he had faith, because he put the tools together, assembling the advisors, assembling um, the infrastructure and, you know, stating that this is, this is it, guys. Christianity. One God. One God. And how, I mean, this was just appalling to well, probably many of the Roman citizens. But we are thankful for Constantine that he did that, that he had this experience, that God gave him this experience. Why is this important? So we're going to talk about two things, and I, I hope to have some feedback on these two things. <laughs> we're going to talk about the Edict of Milan, which happened in 313 A.D. Does anybody know what the Edict of Milan did for us as Christians? Ended persecution. Mm-hmm. Ended persecution. Made Christianity legal. Basically. Made Christianity legal. Yeah, it's, it's kind of a big deal. <laughs> kind of a big deal. So the Edict granted to the Christians and others full authority to observe that religion which each preferred. So it not only ended the persecution of Christians, it gave the people the authority to worship how they wanted. The edict granted all persons freedom to worship whatever deity they pleased. And it assured Christians of legal rights, including the right to organize churches, and directed the prompt return to Christians of confiscated property 
I think it's amazing to reflect back and to, to recognize how an event like this and the, and the follow-up of, the, of an event like this reflects so many things that other things that we recognize in history in our history in our time Christians are persecuted all over the world and we are blessed and privileged to not experience that here in Mandarin but you can't go very far until you see Christians Persecuted. Any of you have traveled um, vast differences in, um, in, around the world? Um, maybe you've seen that. Hopefully you haven't experienced it. But I think it's hard for us to imagine the length at which fellow human beings would go to keep people from worshiping a God that they didn't understand didn't understand. So in 325, and this, this is probably something we, most of us know, Constantine presided over the Council of Nicaea. What, did, what happened at the Council of Nicaea? The Nicene Creed came out of that. What else? What the, the purpose of the convening of that conference was because people were arguing over how God could be human and divine. Yes. He, how could he be those things at the same time? And this wasn't a, at times, <laughs> I don't, this was not a um, peaceful discussion. Or people that were very passionate about one way, one way to view that or another. So Constantine called all the, the people together. And what they were addressing was a concept called Arianism. And because I, <laughs> I'm trying to steer clear of heresy, I'm probably not going to describe what Arianism is to you fully, but I'll give it a chance. So Arianism involves the question of what it might mean to say that Jesus was the Son of God. And what canonized scripture into an approved whole. So they were looking at scripture not piece by piece, but as a whole. So how could Jesus be divine and human? He didn't care how the matter was resolved, Constantine. But he insisted that the church should be unified. That was also a new concept. Since after all, wasn't that the least part of the point that he was supporting the church? So there is there is also information on Constantine that after his conversion that he was proud of the way that he carried forth his discoveries and his beliefs. So for him, for him to say, why would I be supporting this if it wasn't for unity? That's, um, that's, a, that's a big deal. Again, relevant in our current time. 
So Constantine called bishops from around the world. Not just Bill, excuse me. Maybe that means my time is up. <laughs> he called the bishops from around the world. Around the world in that time. And most of them came from the east, since that's the ma- where the majority of churches were. They were brought together to debate and decide the matter of the divinity. Later, tradition says that there were 318 bishops in attendance. Can you imagine, Father Joe? (laughs) (laughs) 318 bishops. They met in Nicaea, and therefore that is why it's called that council. So Constantine gave the opening address and participated in discussions. And after debates, arguments, probably some people storming out of the room, and theological proposals, and counter-proposals, and counter to the counter-proposals, there was a vote. And it wasn't a close vote. They sided against Arius, the creator of Arian, or the thought process behind Arianism. And they won with only a few dissenters. In the end, only two of the over 300 participants sided with Arius. That's a pretty clear mandate, even in these times. Only two. They devised the creed which would embody their decision. It would embody a set of theological affirmations that everybody agreed on, except for two. They all agreed that these were to be confessed by Christians everywhere because the creed later became the Nicene Creed, which we say every Sunday in some form or fashion. The Nicene Creed proclaims that Christ has always existed and is equal with God. So Jesus has always existed. He was not. He has always existed and was equal with God. Again, I'm not going to dip into those heresies. But that's that's what the Nicene Creed addresses. Jesus is not a subordinate deity of some kind. He is equal, yet also separate. And so we recite that creed still in many churches today. So I want to see if you have any questions about any... Yes? Um, do we know what parts of the creed the two that didn't agree, what parts they didn't agree on? It was most likely the... Um, they couldn't wrap their heads around how... God could be divine and human. And even after the council, this continued on, this argument continued on throughout, I mean, probably still today. But they couldn't wrap their heads around how one God could be two. And this isn't even accounting for the Holy Spirit. (laughs) That would come later, I believe. But did that answer your question? Yes. Um, 
You sound like the Christians were persecuted in Rome, but there must have been a lot of active Christians, maybe um, east of Rome. Yes. If there were that many bishops, so yes. maybe in those areas they had developed Christianity more freely. They had. They were building churches. They and were. So, and Constantine was more of a center. The city was yes. more of a center for them. Yes. So yes, churches were forming in in any kind of fashion, um, all around, and many of them in secret because of the persecution. But it was there. It was there. Rome is the city, but Roman Empire is. I mean, it was, it was all persecution. Persecution was rampant and legal. Yeah. But there were there were quite a few Christians yes. who were yeah. practicing in one way or another. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Including possibly Constantine's father. Wasn't his mother more the influence in that? that maybe, maybe. Yeah. She, I mean, we wouldn't have the Holy Land experience as we do now if it weren't for her. Hmm. Maybe so. Yeah. Can you share a little bit about that? So Helena, Helena, Helena. Um, what's it? Helena. I always heard Helena, but okay. Um, so, she was, I think, Christian before Constantine, like, openly. Um, and when it all, you know, he converted and became legal, she went to the Holy Land, and most of what we believe to be the established sites in the Holy Land, I mean, she was going by local sources, you know, closer to the time period than we are. But, like, all the, like, the, um, the tombs and the, the sites in the Holy Land were protected through, you know, she's the emperor's mom, you know, right. so she's got some clout, <laughs> and, you know, they were establishing churches and shrines, and, and all the, the sites that you see in Jerusalem are based off of, a lot of them are based off of her efforts to, uh, to establish those. Kind of document and record and bring, bring attention to it. Yeah, yeah. Slap a church on it. Right. So um, what Josh, thank you, what Josh has shared is that Constantine's mother um, played a huge influence in establishing what we know today as the Holy Land and the different places where, that are identified as sacred um, for Christianity. And so that's just another reason to... She was the first historical preservation society. Very good. She was the first historical preservation society. Yes. Thank you. Uh, Turkey is um, it is? Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Yes. How did he lose that? How did that status get lost? It's the 15th century. Yeah. Um, what was his name? Um, Suleiman, yeah. Suleiman uh, brought cannons and, and bombarded Byzantium. <laughs> and yeah. he was one of the first major sieges using gunpowder and cannons. Yeah. Suleiman was a, was he Ottoman? Yeah, yeah he was had an Ottoman. Ottoman Turk. Uh, and conquered it and changed the name from, it wasn't Constantinople anymore, it was Byzantium at that point, mm. and changed it to Istanbul. And that was in the 15th century, you said? Yeah, I think early 15th century. So, one can safely say that from the 300, year 300 until the 15th century. If, if, yeah. if some of you tracked 
traveled there, there's a beautiful San Sofia church which was Christian. Although you can see, and I think it was converted, but you can still see the Christian icons. Oh, wow. And then there's the big mosque. They're right next to each other. So you can see the two, um, you can see the history right there. That's wonderful. I hope to go someday. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's, that's amazing. Yes? Well, right now, according to the uh, arch, the Anglican Archbishop of Jerusalem, mm -hmm. there are 1,000 Christians in Gaza, hmm. two churches and a hospital. And in the city of Bethlehem, or the town of Bethlehem, it's only 1% Christian. Hmm. There are almost no Christians in the Holy Land anymore. So Charlotte has shared that um, it's the Archbishop of Jerusalem. Yeah, he's of that archdiocese. It's yes. five countries, actually, that he's over. So, and he has stated, probably recently, because he's had some, some press, <laughs> yes. Um, only a thousand Christians in Gaza. in Gaza. And there's some other things that's, that in Bethlehem, only about 1% of the population is now Christian. So everything is either, in the, is either Muslim or Jewish. There's hardly any Christians left in the Holy Land. So in Bethlehem, he says, there are only 1% of the population in Bethlehem is Christian. Hmm. Thank you. Anyone else? Any questions? So why do we study this? And gosh, I'm thankful to have more knowledgeable historians here than I am. Thank you. Why do we study conversions? It's important. It's the same reason why we study history, history of our country. It's important. What do we say if we um, don't study history, we're doomed to repeat it? Um, yes. Didn't convert to, I'm assuming, the Roman Catholic Church. When no. You say Christianity, right. What body are you talking about? So I, I wouldn't think that the Roman Catholic Church would existed at that point. Would, well, I, would that be? Was establishing yeah. a, a orthodoxy, but even then it split soon thereafter mm -hmm. into what became Roman Catholicism. <clears throat> it wasn't called that yeah. yet, but then over some disputes about the the nature of the Holy Spirit, then we get Eastern Orthodoxy, which is based out of Byzantium. Yes. Yeah, and so that's what coming soon. So at this point, you're pre-denomination. There, yeah. there, there aren't denominations yet. Yeah. They were just the church. And it was, yeah. The Great Schism in, in 1, 000, around 1,000, which is... Was it that far? Much yeah. Okay. yeah. And then the Reformation in 1,500. Mm -hmm. So everything, it's just, it's, you know, all that we've experienced in our history, it's time. You know, like we had 1,000, then 1,500, and now... <laughs> Yeah, around 2,000, it's, it's time. Yeah, at that point, they're just still figuring out, you know, what it even means. Right. Well, yeah, the, I mean, so there's, there were, there's the Council of, of Nicaea, but there's also there, um, several other, three other councils, and um, and I would have to go back and look at my seminary notes to tell you what they were, but they were, all of them, over about a 100-year period, discussing major uh, theological points that we take as foundational. Yeah, another one about the same time was the canon. Yeah. Well, the Nicaea, they did, they canonized scripture. It, that's where the, it was first, yeah. Yes. There's a first and second. Okay, yeah. Yeah. 
So Arius was a different emperor or a bishop? He was a... Um, Just a guy? I mean, Just he was like an oh, aide. He's a preacher, aid, 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 yeah. cleric of... Yeah, and so he... He wasn't He championed this um, notion that God could not be human okay. and divine. But no, he was a... Um, he was not an emperor. He was kind of a... An assistant bishop thing. How I don't did know. He gain entrance into <laughs> so he had a. He was before Nicaea. He was with Alexander, I believe, was who he was with. Was he based on Alexander yet? Let's see. I think. I think he was connected with Alexander. Uh. Yes, yes, yes. I think he, he was, um, and I guess Alexander championed him because it was a thing to do. Alexander who? Um, the Great. Yes, no, no, not the Great. Not the Great. 300 BC. Okay. <laughs> um, no, but he was, um, I feel like he was a bishop. Anyway. Um, how did he? That is interesting. Uh, how did he gain audience to that what's level? What's a meeting without a good disruptor, right? Right. Yes. What's a meeting without a good disruptor? That's what Mary said. <laughs> That's what Mary. Um, but he he is the he's what Arianism is named for. So, and it's one of the. I don't remember. No. I don't. I, no. Is there a correlation there? I, mean, I, I don't. I don't think so. Later, I don't think so. Okay. Yeah. Um, Arianism is just one of, I think, nine heresies that we studied in in Deacon School, um, and I, I can't remember them all. Probably should. Wasn't the <laughs> probably should. Of the whole Nicene Creed. It was also. It wasn't just Arianism. It was also Gnosticism. They were trying to clear. Yep. Up. Yeah. Yep. Arianism was the main. Was the when we look at, at the Nicene Creed and what it, it did, it gave us um, it gave us confirmation that, like Joe said, foundational foundational stuff. So, any other questions? We're going to get out early. Is the apostles did the Apostles' Creed come before the Nicene Creed? Yes. Yes. <laughs> what about can, is it can the you, Athanasians? Can you? That's, Athanasians a, that's a third one. Actually, at the Council of Nicaea, but uh, the Athanasian Creed, which is very dense, it's in the back of the prayer book, um, is about the Holy Spirit as also God. Yeah. Very long. Yeah. Rich yeah. though. But rich. Yeah. yeah. And, and, and an accepted creed of our church, the Apostles of Nicaea and the Athanasian Creed. But uh, Athanasius was, was, that, he was contemporary to this conversation. Yeah. Well, I hope that you'll continue to think about this conversion story and about the importance of what God did through Constantine. Um, because if it hadn't been for this conversion, <clears throat> Christianity as we know it would not be the same would not be the same. To have the stamp of the Roman Empire on Christianity, that was unheard of and amazing. 
So thank you for your time. And next week, um, we're going to move more into modern times, um, like the 15th, maybe the 16th century. Uh, and then in the final week, we'll really get modern and um, talk about, you know, the early 1900s. How about that? Great Thank job, you all. Man. Thank you. Thank you.